and I do want to give you opportunity to to comment and that type of thing. I'll just start off with a note that was given to me from a brother, and it's kind of an interesting little quote here. I don't know where the quote comes from. There are no illegitimate children, just illegitimate parents. Well, it's... In other words, we can't blame the children or hold that against them in any way. They need all the love and, and hope that we as a as neighbors, as a community, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can give them. I'm embarrassed to say that I skipped a page. Um, I want to uh, just briefly go through it. I hope this won't absorb too much time. But you know, one of the key things that that uh, God had within that framework of marriage was to be fruitful and multiply. There are two, two areas, of course, where this works. One is, is in the earth, where the earth is replenished with people. It's an obvious, it's a given. But the other, there is a spiritual dimension, and it kind of dovetails with what we were talking about earlier concerning the benefits of marriage in the church. Uh, uh, a dear brother came to me, and he had a quotation from the Bible that he introduced to me, and, and it caused me to realize... Oops, I forgot. So uh, let's take a look at this. This is in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15. And it goes hand in hand with being fruitful and multiplying. And it also goes hand in hand with the idea of our children being sanctified. Did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. And uh, when, I, when I was reading this, it, it really kind of stuck in my mind, this little question, having a remnant of the Spirit, did he not make them one having a remnant? What's that mean, having a remnant of the Spirit? And I'm not here to say that, oh, I know the answer, but this is what I, this is what I think, this is what has come to my mind. <clears throat> there are some elements of the Holy Spirit that I do believe we see involved in the marriage. Um, for one, the idea of, of making them one, making them a unified whole. Uh, we get the idea that, that there is, in this wholeness, in this unity, there is a covenant. A covenant established by this commitment to be one life, to be one family. And you think of one, you know, we, we have the individuality of one, but, but it's, it's like having, having another set of limbs, you know, being being divorced is like it's worse than chopping an arm or a leg off. We are meant to be that kind of one in the Lord, have that unity. And the Spirit is involved. A remnant of the Spirit is involved. And the thing that it makes me think is that the Spirit is uh, the medium of the covenant. Um, in the he Hebrew letter, chapter 8, verses 10 through 12, it says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, it's talking about the new covenant that we enjoy. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. Now this idea of the law being written on our hearts, we have an explanation for that in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'd like to begin with verse 1. Paul wrote, do we begin to commend ourselves? Do we need as some others epistles of commendation or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, not written with ink, 
but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the flesh, that is, of the heart. In other words, God has inscribed this covenant that we have in Christ on our heart through the Spirit. I take this to mean that, that we are called not to, not to follow God's will, to obey God, because it's just written like a list on the refrigerator that we give for our children. We, we are made to follow God because that now becomes a part of us. It's a, a part of our, our natural inclination, if you want to call the Spirit being natural to us. It's being a part of us by the way God has made this new creation. So that same thing evidently is in marriage. That, that idea of the covenant, being one, the Spirit is involved in that, I believe. And there's also the idea of the process of procreation, godly offspring. Um, here in, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, we see that the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. God created the heavens and the earth, and it speaks of the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. In other words, the Spirit was involved in creation. In Psalms 104 and verse 30, you send forth your Spirit, they are created. It's talking about the ships that are on the sea, the existence of all the life that is in the earth. The Spirit of God was involved in that. And here's a particular thing in Job 33, verse 4. This was, um, uh, what was his name now? Was it Elihu? It was the young man who was outside uh, watching the, the conversation of Job and his three friends. And uh, he, uh, he made this statement with regard to himself. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Elihu, the son of Berkel, the Buzite, I think is who that was. But this statement, the Spirit of God has made me, gives me the breath of life. Now... It might be argued that he was talking about the fact that he was inspired as he spoke, that he was awakened by the Spirit to respond to this situation of Job and what his three friends were saying to him. But we could also make just as valid an argument that who he was at that moment, whether it was by inspiration or whether it was just by the fact that he was an avid young man for uh, the will of God and the knowledge of God, he does say, the Spirit of God has made me. So I think of this idea of the remnant of, of the Spirit being involved in godly seed, godly offspring, man and woman having children, children who come to know the Lord and name the Lord, that the Spirit of God is involved in that. Now I'd like to, uh, to go back to the, the last point that, that uh, I had given up on, and that is the uh, qualification for elders and deacons. As you know, that for both of those offices, that marriage is a prerequisite, and uh, it's something that, that shows the, the capability of an individual to preside. And one of the things that, that it seems to me, and I'm just going to use that expression, it seems to me to be the, the overriding uh, case for this, is the, the factor of experience. I remember reading an article uh, some years ago about some family counselors living in, in Lawrence, Kansas, and uh, um, so the, somebody had made mention, you know, they were talking about settling all these various family problems with children and so on, and, and um, somebody asked them, well, don't you have to have children in order to be able to understand, and they, no, we don't, our experience, our knowledge enables us to understand, and, and I thought, man, that's okay, that's your solution, that's the world's solution. But, you know, in the, in the house of God, it is good that we have 
leaders or those who preside who do understand because of experience. Men and women who know what it's like to, to have conflict or problems, knows what it's like to iron them out in a godly fashion, to, to speak, to work with one another, and to know what it's like to have problems, not just problems of finances, but problems that, that come with having a family, learning to raise children, learning what it's like to, to uh, knock your own knees as a father by maybe being too harsh or being too lenient and having, having to learn to balance the two. You come to terms with all kinds of problems that could not be known otherwise other than to be married. At least for that kind of position where you're with the brethren day in and day out as either elders or deacons. It gives the qualification of understanding the congregation, understanding the flock. And perhaps some of you will have more to add to that as we move on. Are there any questions or comments before we move into the uh, second half of, of today's lesson? Anything you want to bring out? I don't see any hands. Perhaps that's a good thing. All right. When we come into marriage, there has to be this expectation of unity and permanency. We talked about this a little earlier before, that, that it's important not to be cynical as we approach marriage. But even more than that, there, there should be high expectations. Not unrealistic expectations, but high expectations. The kind of expectations that are born out of the expectation of brotherly love, the expectation of the fruit of the Spirit, the expectation of having someone who truly is a friend. Not just a sexual companion, but a friend. To expect that within this marriage you're going to be with somebody who will be with you, thick or thin. And that is a, a beautiful thing to attain, and it is very attainable. First of all, it is designed to be permanent. In uh, Matthew, the 19th chapter, uh, verses 4 through 6, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Well, this is Jesus talking. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So when that commitment is made, yes, we have the, the man and the woman making some established commitment, some, something that comprises marriage in the eyes of God and man. But God is in the mix. Even if the, the couple doesn't acknowledge that God is in the mix, He's in the mix. This is something that comes from God. And He said, let not man separate. It's meant to be a permanent thing. It's not meant to be casual, a, a little leisure time with a wife or a husband. And this, this permanent thing calls us to high expectations of godliness. You know, when you think about the permanency of something, you want, you want somebody to be there and you want yourself to meet the qualification of being that type of person who will make for permanency, who will make for something that is, is solid and unshakable. We can do this. There is a level of character that God calls us to, and it, it is a good thing. It's not, it's not a boring kind of thing. First of all, as we had mentioned, there's friendship. And that friendship goes into a, a mutual appreciation of who the person is, their character, the kind of personality they might have, but I would say even beyond personality, the thing that, that makes them trustworthy 
the thing that makes them a delight to be around. There's friendship involved in this. There should be an expectation of mercy. We're looking for someone who's merciful. Because when we, when we come to another in marriage, we do not come to another as a perfect man or a perfect woman. Hopefully we're coming to another as someone who is learning, someone who is a disciple and who cares about growing in Christ. But there is, there is a vast difference between our level of maturity and who Christ is. And it, mercy is the thing that helps us to, to get along. That, that depth of compassion and, and the willingness to work with one another and, and not be overly upset at many of the, of the character quirks and flaws that have not yet been ironed out. Mercy is a beautiful thing. And the Lord wants us to exercise that. Faithfulness. We have high expectations of faithfulness. This idea of, of being able to rely on the other and, uh, and not, not be afraid of the other. Not have unwarranted... You know, we use the term jealousy oftentimes, I think, in the wrong way. We oftentimes refer to jealousy as somebody who is just cloying, somebody who's just constantly worried about the other partner uh, being taken away or, or this type of thing. And, and uh, no, no, that's, that's, that, that's maybe... That's sick is what it is. Uh, it's not right. A proper jealousy is, is just comes from the, the fact that she belongs to me. Stay out of our family. And that's a proper thing. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a faithfulness there, a reliance upon the other that no one else can broach. And then there's the, I guess you could say, the high expectation of disposition. A person who has loving kindness rather than being critical. Oh, wouldn't that be awful to marry somebody who, who just criticizes other people all the time? Well, you know you're going to be criticized if you join together with that person. That doesn't change very quickly. Someone who, who doesn't do those things, but is rather tends to be kind. Uh, someone who is understanding rather than harsh. We want to be understanding rather than harsh. We want to be thoughtful of others versus selfish. Peaceable versus argumentative. These are all very high character qualities that, that marriage calls us to. And the thing that makes it clear in our mind, the necessity for these things, is understanding that this is a permanent deal. It's not meant to be, well, I just don't like that, I think I'll back out. It's not that way. It's a permanent thing, and the thing that makes it possible for it to be beautiful is we have those expectations in ourselves, and we're looking for that in the other. And if you have a husband and a wife that are looking, have that attitude of self-examination and, and trusting in the other, it can only grow and be solid. Here in James, I'd like to use this as a summary statement. <clears throat> James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. For this wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and everything are there, evil thing are there. Uh, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is not an ideal. This is pointing us to the real. 
This is something that God wants us to fulfill. It's His will that we fulfill these things. So these things are well within our grasp. And they ought to be the heart and soul of who we are and what we expect to fulfill in our marriage. Um, We have an example in the Bible of marriage. Quite a number of of different ones are shown, but I'd like to focus on, on Joseph. We have Abraham and Sarah and Boaz and Ruth, but I would like to consider Joseph. If you'll turn with me to the 18th chapter of Ma- or first chapter of Matthew, verse 18, and uh, it shows us how that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And it says, "Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit." Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now. The Bible doesn't give us any insight whatsoever as to the conversation that they, they had or conversations when Joseph realized that Mary was pregnant and that he had nothing to do with that. Um, what did he think when she explained to him about the visitation from Gabriel and that the Holy Spirit of God, did she talk about those things to Joseph? Uh, the Bible doesn't disclose it. But we do see this statement about Joseph. He was a just man. She chose her man well. Here was not a man who was going to ridicule her publicly, expose her shame, make her, make her look to be like a whore. Instead, he was going to put her away privately. We'll just keep this thing on the down low. No need to have any excess exposure on this or humiliation on perhaps our part, your part. But the Bible says the reason he did this was because he was just. And I I really like this example in Joseph. And then we see him just readily following through when the the angel spoke to him and and a dream and all of these things were, were revealed. We don't see him hesitating on this. We see him following through, that he was ready and willing. We don't see a man who was who was caught up in well, what could it have been, that kind of thing. And what we see in this is an example of faithfulness. An example of a man, even even in the face of a possible wrong that was done in, in his marriage, he was still faithful and he was just. He was decent in his treatment of her. And then when the, when the good news was made apparent to him, he followed through without, without any issues or problems whatsoever. Any questions or comments before we move on? Okay, I want to go into the, the part that I really don't want to go into because it's not a happy part, but it is a necessary part, and that is deviations. Uh, deviations that we have from the plan that God has given. And uh, I've included in this fornication, divorce, adultery, homosexuality, and etc. Um, here in Genesis, the 15th chapter, I'd like to read from this and Uh, this has to do with Abraham and, and the plan of God for the people of Abraham. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, or Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed, oh, I, I pasted from the King James here, thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not there, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. 
And also that nation whom they shall serve, I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it's that last line that I'm thinking about. What we see in this is, is that the degradation of a society, it takes time, but it's sure the Lord could see what was coming. He could have condemned the Amorites then and there, knowing what they would do and knowing the kind of society that would be in the land of Canaan, but he didn't. He allowed them to live just as we are allowed to live. People are given time, but he could see what was coming. And he knew the time would come when this people did not need to live on the earth any longer because of their depravity. Uh, in the 19th chapter of Genesis and verse 9, we see something happening a little later with Lot and uh, his being visited by angels. And we see the kind of degradation that occurred at his time. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah gathered around where Lot was and he, where he was hosting the angels. And uh, they said, this one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Get the sense that the people around Lot, they saw something different. They knew something different because of the way Lot lived. They knew that uh, there was righteousness. They could see that what they were doing was outside the, the pale of, of anything that was good, but instead of taking it to heart and changing it, you're a judge. You're judging us. In other words, that's, that's your only function is to sit here and look at us and, and, and think that we're evil. And that's, that's what we do when we're evil. We oftentimes will hide in that and... and the innocence is besmirched because that's our only defense is to speak evil of the innocence that makes us feel guilty, that, that contrast that makes us feel wrong. But here they were, they were degraded. They were degraded to the point where they, they were willing to, to just take these, these, evidently they must have been pretty good looking in their manifestation. They wanted to take them and rape them, I believe. That was the idea behind this. What in the world was going on? Well, here is a society just getting re being ready to be flushed down the toilet because they were, they were that way. In the book of Leviticus, the 18th chapter and the 20th chapter, we won't go into that, but you might take a, take a read. And it shows us the sins of the land of Canaan. And it was a land that was ready to be destroyed. There was all manner of incest going on. There was adultery right and left. There was homosexuality without any thought. Bestiality was there. But apparently this wasn't just little pockets. You get the idea that the land of Canaan was loaded with this stuff. This was the way they were. And uh, the Lord saw fit to destroy them utterly. And the reason I, I bring this out is because it shows that this is the kind of thing that comes to a degradation. It's like, um, oh, I don't know, could you call it like a cancer or like a fungus, something that just keeps growing and permeating in a society once it gets going? 
and it goes down, it goes downhill. And I'm not saying this because, okay, let's, let's stand up and stop this nonsense in the world. I don't think we're in the position to do that. We're in the position to stop ourselves, and we are in the position to teach our children what's right. But we don't have the power to stop people. That's not our place. Our place is to uphold the gospel of repentance, that people would repent. And as long as we do that, that we're showing them that they have the opportunity and the obligation to make a choice before God. But we are not in the business of coercing people. We are not Islamic. Nor are we of the children of Israel who entered the land of Canaan to destroy the wicked from the earth. That's not our place. The Lord will come in flaming fire and take vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. But He hasn't come yet. And so it's up to us to uphold what's good and what's right. And who knows how the page will turn for tomorrow. We, we, don't, we can't see that. We can just hold on and do what's right. Now, let's consider uh, fornication for a moment. If you'll turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians in the 6th chapter, beginning in, in about uh, verse 15 or so. This is kind of interesting because it sort of gives a, a little education as to what sexual intercourse is all about. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. So he's talking about somebody who's out fornicating. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. It's an act of procreation by mutual consent without marriage. Now, we understand that in, in adultery, fornication oftentimes is involved in adultery. But fornication isn't in and of itself adultery. You can have unmarried people that commit fornication. But it is a, a mutual consent here, and it's intimacy without consent. And the type of intimacy that has the potential to bring forth children. Well, we have the birth control pill. We have methods of dealing with unwanted pregnancies. Well, we can, we can, as a society, people can fool themselves with this idea. Oh, yeah, we can do that, and it makes everything okay. But it doesn't make everything okay. But even with those contingencies, we still are committing an act that has the potential to bring forth life. That means there's the potential of the mother having the, the burden of sorrow and bearing the child and the responsibility of, of nurturing the child and the man, the father, taking care of both the mother and child and being responsible to make sure that there's, there's food, there's provision, that they're cared for. And, uh, well, with a, the drop of a pill or uh, insertion of an IUD or whatever, or whatever it's called, um, all of that can go away. But it still doesn't take the reality away that there's commitment involved. And uh, it's a denial of that commitment, and it's a denial of the truth. It's a living lie, and it's a, it's a happy day that has no real happiness to it. A denial of the value of our own life and the life of our partner. Here in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. In other words, this is, this is not a casual thing that we can participate in. In the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, you probably remember that where 
uh, Paul and Barnabas and some others went to Jerusalem to uh, find out what was going on with these guys who came to Antioch telling the Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised and keep the law. And so they came to Jerusalem and there were Pharisees who believed and uh, they said the Gentiles should be circumcised and keep the law. And the church gathered together with the elders and apostles and they all discussed this thing and they readily came to the conclusion that that was not from the Lord. That the Gentiles did not need to follow the culture of the Jewish people. Circumcision was not required and the, the keeping of the law, even as a custom, was not required. Uh, all of that was non-essential and the Gentiles should be accepted upon their faith in Christ. However, they did send messages to the various churches that had been so afflicted by that false teaching that there were certain obligations that the Gentiles had to follow, and one of which was to stay away from fornication. And I believe the reason for that was because in the Gentile world, fornication was no biggie. It was something that that was common to Gentile culture. It was not considered to be uh, a bad thing. Now, with regard to marriage and adultery, I doubt if too many husbands or wives smiled upon fornication uh, if their spouse committed such. But uh, outside of marriage in the society, evidently it was very common, and and even in their, their temples, their temples were kind of like brothels, male and female alike, and that was all inculcated, ingrained in their, their system of worship. So to the Gentiles, stay away from fornication, things strangled in blood, idols. But fornication is what we're under, underscoring here because it was so uh, predominant in the world. It's very predominant in our world today. I remember meeting with one group of people, and uh, the one guy looked over at, at uh, Sally, and we had our children. They were small at the time. Are these your children? All your children? You know, like, yeah, this is our family. You know, and you know, in his mind, it was like, well, that's kind of unusual. Many, you know, different fathers, that type of thing. It's common. It's very common. It's becoming more common all the time. And so we, we, we do need to uphold the need for maintaining our own fidelity. Fornication is not pleasure. It's, it's really not fun. It may, it may seem like it in the moment. Other people may talk about it. I'm, you know, I'm speaking to everybody who I'm sure just agrees with it. But the fact of it is, is that it's filled with consequence. And uh, I still think of that line from Eric Clapton, I've got a problem, can you relate? I've got a problem, call it love-hate. What's he talking about there? I think he's talking about the problem of fornication. You think you love somebody, but there's no commitment there. That's not love, not really. There's something else going on there. It's an act of selfishness covered with pleasure, and we think that it's love. Fornication. For 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Flee also youthful lust, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So this brings us to the next step, and that is, that is the, the, the problem of adultery, where what God has joined together is torn asunder by adultery. And it is an act of fornication with another while married, or another who is married, or is both. I believe it can also be an act where a promise is broken. Uh, You know, it's interesting. The two shall be one flesh. We think of of God giving giving the man over to the woman. But, you know, when you look at that account in Genesis, the second chapter, and they're standing before God as, as a man and woman who are married, 
Do you get the sense that, that he was looking at a consummated marriage? That somehow in this process that they had fulfilled the function of the wedding bed? I don't get that sense at all. I get the sense that they stood before God and they were counted as one flesh because of the commitment. God had joined them together. Which is more important, really, when you get down to it? The commitment that is made or the act that occurs afterward in the bedroom? Which one has the most force? Oftentimes we say, well, it's the bedroom. The bedroom has the most force. You know, that's, that's where the child is produced. Okay, that's, that's nice for the biology of things. But what about for the spirit? Aren't we spiritual beings as well? Don't our words mean something? Do we not have power? Do we not have force in our inner man that amounts to something? Or are we just flesh and blood? Are we just organisms and nothing else? If it's the bedroom is the only thing that counts, then we're no better than an animal. But if our words matter, if our covenant with the other matters, we are spiritual and we want to uphold that. What if you get married? What if a person is married and you find out the other cannot perform, so to speak? What do you do then? Well, let's let's get a divorce. What was it that caused us to be together in the first place? What was it that mattered in the beginning? You know, there's uh, there's a passage. Uh, let's go go to this if I can find it here, um, where Jesus talked about the you know the the problem uh, of the law. And you know, the, under the law, Moses had given them a writing of divorcement because of the hardness of their hearts. Uh, I can't find it right away. Uh, and pardon me, Matthew the nineteenth chapter. All right. And I, it caused me to think about that when he said the hardness of your hearts. What, what's involved in that? Well, can you imagine, here's somebody who's married, and let's put it in our time frame. After the, after the promises are made and a few days occur, pretty soon you find out that your spouse is taking medication for depression. Or you find out that your spouse has this, this sore on their belly or on their back that's horrible. Or you find something that just that bothers you, that you didn't know and wasn't spoken of in advance. And, oh, I feel betrayed. This wasn't told to me in advance and I didn't know and all that. And I imagine things like that happened back then and they happen today. But <clears throat> Jesus used the term hardness of your hearts. You know, when, if we marry, and it's, if it's just for the body of another person, if that's all it was, then, okay, so what? Go your way. I'll find somebody that, that fits the package better. But we're not that way. We're supposed to have tender hearts. We're supposed to have hearts that love. There's supposed to be friendship there. We've got this problem. You know, and, and I can imagine there, there might be a sense of hurt because this wasn't disclosed beforehand, but still, this is, this is your life. This is your mate. This is one with whom you are made one before God. And what would the softness of heart do? What would the tenderness of heart do? It would cause us to be compassionate. It would cause us to rethink. And there's the potential for the firmness 
of the ties of love and friendship to be well established within that problem. And not everything is, can be disclosed. There are a lot of things that we can't possibly disclose in the period of time that we get to know each other. Oh, I find something. Oh, I didn't know you had that habit. Oh, well, you know. What about being soft in heart? What about being compassionate? What about working that out? It isn't like pretending that a problem doesn't exist, but can it not be worked out because of love? And that was the problem that existed in Moses' day, and, and God gave them leave for the hardness of your hearts. In His wisdom, He saw that this is, this is the way we're going to handle it for the time being. But now He's called us to a higher order to work these things out, to love one another, even though we might find something that, that is unloving or harder to love about that other person. But we work on it. We work on it together. He doesn't want us to, to say, well, you know, divorce, yeah. Um, you know, we don't have in the Bible God's plan for divorce. I can't give a lesson on that. Here's God's plan for divorce. But here's God's plan for marriage. We can see things in the Bible about the goodness of marriage, and we can uphold those things. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That shows us how adamant God is on this matter of adultery. It, it is worthy of death. Now, I think we all understand that in the New Covenant, we do not have the power to throw stones. We do not have the power to condemn. The Lord is the one who will judge. But in the end, we do have the power to say this is not right. This is not true. This is not from God. There is no plan for divorce from God. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not a stranger's with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? This goes for male and female alike, doesn't it? Why should, why should our fountain be sullied? Why should we drink from something that is impure and unholy? Why, why be, dis, be besmirched? As we read earlier from the book of 1 Corinthians, the two shall be one. Okay? One with somebody who doesn't love you. One who is just out for a time. A little sex. A little pleasure. One who may well turn their back on you in a moment's notice and never think about you again. You become one with that person in body. Not, not a beautiful scene, is it? Nothing beautiful about that at all. Well, why is adultery condemned? Well, it seems obvious on the face of it, just from the things we've looked in the Bible here. But uh, we know that it's a breach of God's will. What God has joined together. So, if we commit adultery, we, we break the will of God. We deny His will. We turn His back on His will. It, it is a sin. Um, it's a breach of trust. In the book of Malachi, chapter 2 and verse... 16, we, we uh, have this statement. Take heed to your spirit that you do not do treacherously. 
It speaks uh, in the same passage of violence. These are treacherous acts. A breach of trust to the one that we've made promises, commitment to. That, that high level of spirituality we've taken and, and dropped that in the wastebasket. And the Bible speaks of it as being not only treacherous, but violent. It's something that, that causes a deep harm. I uh, had a good friend. He's deceased now. That's why I use the past tense. But he was, he was a good, good man. His wife left him, and she ended up marrying another. And I, I'll never forget him telling me. He said, you know, if she had died, that would have been hard to bear. But when she left the way she did, you don't know how that makes you feel. This is supposed to be the one person who knows you better than anybody else in the world, and they turn their back on you. That's just, that's treachery, isn't it? Talk about feeling like dirt. He felt, you know, I could, I could see it, I could hear it in his voice. He didn't wear that on his shirt sleeve, by the way. He wasn't that kind of guy. But in a moment of candor, he, he expressed that to me. I don't think he would mind. He's not around to hear me anyway, but uh, anyway. There are spiritual, physical consequences from adultery. There's confusion and alienation in the family. That is treachery. Any of you who have come from a divorced home, something's missing there. And no matter how the other spouse tries to make up for it, it's still not the way it's supposed to be. This is not a world that should be celebrating single mothers. We should not celebrate single mothers, but they are celebrated. It's not a good thing. There should not be single mothers. Mothers should be loved by fathers. If there is a tragedy in, in a single mother, let it be because the father has died, not because he's turned his back on her. Or let it be because the mother has died, not because she's turned her back on her husband. It's a terrible thing, not only between the mates, but also for the sake of the offspring. Oh, we'll stay together for the sake of the offspring. Stay together for one another because of our love for God and because of our love for one another. Well, I don't feel like I love... Well, it isn't a matter of how we feel. It's a matter of what God wants us to fulfill. Do we believe that we can fulfill it? We should. And I don't mean to be speaking as if, you know, you guys are having problems because I, I, that's not my place. I'm just kind of being sort of passionate about this thing. So please overlook it. There's a world of negligent men, as we made mention before, and a world of children left in the lurch. One example um, in the Bible... Oh, we're running out of time. Just, just briefly, here's, here is David. And uh, you remember what he did with Bathsheba and all, and, and how, it, how it wholly degraded David. He ended up trying to uh, trick Uriah into going into his wife so that the pregnancy would be hidden. Finally, because Uriah was a noble man and would not enjoy a moment of pleasure because he felt loyalty to his soldiers, his fellow soldiers, his troops, and he knew that they were out there on the battlefield, he would not have a moment of pleasure. And so David contrived with Joab to put Uriah in the heat of the battle and withdraw from him. Leave him all alone so that the enemy will kill him, thus murdering Uriah by tactic. And this is what was done. And there's a, there is a result in David's life. Because of this deceit 
that came out of David, there was a great deal of pain and long-range effects. One, consider Joab. Now, Joab, he's kind of a treacherous guy, one of the sons of Zeruiah, we, uh, nephew of David. We get the sense that he was not uh, the best of men. But I don't think it helped him to be a good man, do you? To be called upon by the king to leave a soldier in the lurch for the sake of killing that man? That must have been demoralizing in some respect. It was not a good outcome. What about the troops that saw that happen? Did they not discuss that among themselves? Were they ignorant of what was going on? Well, at least they could see that this wasn't right to leave Uriah out in the field. How did that happen? Was there a rumor? Well, we don't know. But a lot of bad things were going on already. And then in 2 Samuel, when, uh, when Nathan the prophet exposed David to his crime and, and uh, David came to repentance, verse 11 of 2 Samuel chapter 12 Behold, I will raise up adversity from, against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. This a direct result of, of David's immorality. Now, how did that happen? Well, we know that it was Absalom who uh, did this thing. Absalom caused David to be exiled, and Absalom went into the concubines of David, and everybody knew this. That prophecy was fulfilled. Well, how did Absalom come to that state? Well, he came to that state because he had a sister named Tamar, and uh, his, uh, his brother, we would say half-brother today, but his brother, uh, Amnon, raped her. And David let it go. David did not punish this. I don't know why David didn't. Maybe there was latent guilt in his own mind for what he did. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I shouldn't even suggested that. But, uh, but the outcome was that Absalom was filled with rage because David did not do anything. Finally, he ended up killing Abnon, and because of this murder, uh, he went into exile, and he was uh, separated, uh, estranged from his father for a good while. Finally, when he came back, he came back full of himself. He had a troop of men going before him and all of this, and he would uh, make his case before the people of Israel. Oh, if somebody would just listen to your cause, I know I'd be there to help you. Well, he gained power that way, and David, in turn, was in exile. And finally they came to blows, and David pleaded with Joab, do not kill Absalom. You know, he, had a, he, he understood what was going on with Absalom. He said, don't kill him. But here, Absalom got his hair uh, tangled up in the terebinth tree, and Joab came, and he did him in. And uh, the, the words, we remember the words of David, my son, my son. And you just can't help but think as he was weeping those words that he, he knew the history behind those words. He knew the series of events, the chain of events that came because of that one time, that influence that spread out from there. He could see that it actually happened. Will it always be dramatic that way in adultery? Will that always happen? Just like that, uh, I don't know. I believe things can be repaired, but it does show that there, there are terrible things that can come out of it, terrible influences that come unleashed. Okay, well, I haven't... I want to leave time for questions and comments, please. Now, there was one sister who gave me a sheet of paper, maybe this is it, Oh, this is it. Never mind. I thought I lost it and I was going to ask her to give it. 
Okay, uh, let's see. It says, in your opinion, what is the time frame between when Adam and Eve were created? Um, I believe it was in the sixth day. They, that's male and female, created he them, or made he them. So they were on the sixth day. It seems like when we read the second chapter of Genesis, like, wow, to name all the animals, all this stuff, that... But remember, Adam was, he was a perfect man. He was superhuman compared to us. He had no death, absolutely innocence. There was a lot of power in that guy. Yes, I think all of that happened on day six, even the comprehension of the entire animal kingdom in a very for- short period of time. That's, that's my take on it. Any, any questions? Okay, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on. With, re- with regard to uh, divorce itself, there is, no, there is no plan for divorce. And um, in, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, the 24th chapter, again, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand. All of that was legal under the law. But under Christ... We don't have that. The Lord has not given us an option for the hardness of our hearts. The, uh, the option, if you want to call it that, the reality, we can call it that, is brotherly love, brotherly kindness, and charity. The love of God that uh, Jesus gave when he laid his life down. These are the things that God calls us to address one another with in our, in our problems of life. And if, if we feel hankering for something outside. Well, I know there's going to be some discussion on this later, so I won't get into it, but we need to remember, we're called upon to love. And we just can't lean on this old saw, well, I just don't feel it anymore. That's not reality. That's just playing with our feelings. If it's all about feelings, go get some Valium. Because, you know, it's just chemistry. But in reality, what we do, what we value, that has to be our motivating factor. And sometimes what we value causes us sacrifice. It causes us uh, periods of discomfort, but it's well worth it because it's something of a very high order. Jesus didn't give his life, you know, with cotton candy and happy flowers and songs. He gave his life through suffering, and uh, we we can suffer for one another for the beauty of holiness. With regard to, uh, to homosexuality, uh, going back to Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Um, here we have some picture of, uh, of causes for this, this thing that God saw worthy of death. There are some root causes for this. Um, here in Ezekiel, the 16th chapter, This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Ezekiel 16 and verse 49. She and her daughters had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. I believe the abomination is the what happened when we see the angels coming to Lot. That kind of way of living. Well, where did that come from? Well, it came from enjoying prosperity without thanksgiving. It's not a sin to be prosperous. Paul said, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. 
I know how to be hungry. I know how to be full. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That means right now in our prosperity, we can be full, we can abound, and we can live the life that the Lord wants us to live in, in the love of God, in the loving kindness toward our neighbors and one another. We can do these things. We can fulfill it through Christ. But if we forget to be thankful, if we take these things for granted, then we become the kind of people that are looking for something to satisfy. Oh, I'm satisfied. I'm bored, really. What's on TV? What's on the internet? What does this do? What does that look like? How does this feel? You know, I never thought about it before. Maybe there's something enjoyable about that. Somehow or another, people, people lose track of who they are and become something different. And it's because we're no longer appreciating what God, who God is and what we have because of God. We're no longer thankful. I believe that's a big problem of our nation, is people aren't being thankful for the abundance that we have. And so there's a temptation to be saturated with things that just give us a sense of enjoyment that have no meaning whatsoever. The degradation occurs. In the book of Romans, in the first chapter... There's, there's also something that's underlying the, this type of uh, devolving, I guess you could say, of character. And, and it comes because of failing to recognize God. Here in, in Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, <clears throat> The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteous, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So the, uh, the, the denial of God, the turning away to, to atheism and agnosticism and just kind of giving up on what's really before our eyes... Um, you know, it, it causes us to lose our foundation for having a good perspective, a solid perspective. And so, as a result, verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools, and it shows how they turned to idolatry, and all of these things happened, then finally they, they worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. That seems to be very part and parcel with the materialistic society. We may not call it worship in our society, but it's like that. It means a whole lot to us the things that we possess and what we are able to do with our free time, all of the luxuriant behaviors that, that we engage in. So, um, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, likewise also the men. So here we have a, a picture of, of the, the, the fall of mankind, people being degraded, and the root of it ultimately is the failure to, to recognize God and to worship Him, to understand our Creator. Now, I, I don't say this to belittle many of the men and women who have fallen this way. Uh, in my youth, I used to hang around 
homosexuals. I was in a rock band and we played at a homosexual concert, you know, that kind of a thing. Our piano player was a homosexual. So I kind of lived the life of, you know, yeah, that's all right, it's his life, I can, that's cool, you know, that kind of thing. I had that attitude. And how would I feel about if I met that piano player today? If I ever had the opportunity to meet him, I don't know how I would act, I can't tell you, but I tell you this, I liked him just as a person back then, and I hope that I would treat him with honor. The Bible tells us to honor all, to honor all men. And I hope that there would be a way I could help him see that there's a different way of life, that he can overcome that. That's, that's the big lie of our society, that, that nature has made you this way, that you're born this way. Which makes me think that, that it's such an overwhelming perspective that once, that once that step is taken that it's entirely engulfing so that your past becomes something different than what it really was. It becomes distorted to fit your present situation. Um, but yet, it's not impossible. As you remember in the book of 1 Corinthians, such were some of you. The Lord, the Lord can, can cleanse. Um, we're running out of time, and I did want to talk about being single just for a few minutes. I wish I would have spent more time on this because it, it is, I think, a valuable thing to be single. There was a brother who came and spoke with me about this, and I could see that he, he really understood the beauty of giving your life to God without marriage. Here in the book of Matthew in the 19th chapter, um, after Jesus had taught about the sanctity of marriage and the, you know, divorce is not an option, all of that. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. This means that there, there are people who do not get married, and rather than being an exception, we might say they are exceptional people. They've been given something something that's very good, that capacity to remain unmarried and, and to give their life to the Lord in, in a more complete way. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. This is kind of a, a little different thing than, than we have in the book of Genesis where it says, be fruitful and multiply. Here we have through the Holy Spirit the idea that, well, you know, being single for the sake of the Lord is, is a very good thing. But it is better to marry than to burn. Most of us would burn, I think. Most of us need to be married, and it's appropriate to be married. But for those souls who have that capacity to remain single, and maybe, maybe it's not because you wanted it so, but it's kind of ended up that way. Here you are, 30, 40 years old, and you're not married. It isn't necessarily because there's something wrong. Perhaps God has given you a gift, and you are an exceptional person. Moving on in this same chapter, Paul wrote, I wish that all men were as I myself, that each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. But to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And then again, chapter 7 and verses 32 and 34, I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a, an interesting thing here. Does this mean that 
if you're if you're married, you're kind of you're kind of back with the old caveman kind of thing. Oh, ugga booga, you know, it's having marriage. Oh, I want to be married. Um, it, you know, it's almost that way if you read it. You're you're spiritual if you remain unmarried and you're kind of here in the earth if you're not. But really, marriage is a very, of a very high order. As we've seen, it's something that, that God has given, and it is for most of us. It's just obvious. It is for the majority of people. But Paul is pointing out that for those who do have that gift, and Jesus called it a gift from God, there is something that is of a very high order here, and it is higher than marriage. There is something that is good in this. Now, I, I, don't, I don't fully understand it because I've never experienced it, but haven't you seen exceptional people? People who, because they are not married, they do have more time in their understanding of the Scriptures. They have more time in being able to visit, to do good for others, acts of charity. I, I know one sister who is never married, and she was a pillar in the congregation. She not only did things for other people, but she could always be counted upon. She never spoke evil of other people. She was, she was the light whenever there was darkness. Did she dedicate herself to the Lord and being unmarried to be that which is written up? I don't know what she thought about her own condition. All I know is how she acted. And uh, I think anybody who ever knew her would say, truly, this woman was holy. She was a very beautiful soul, and she did much good among the believers. And this is, I believe, what the, what the Lord is pointing to. I'm going to close here, unless you have comments to make. Well, thank you very much for your good attention. Uh, one comment? Roger Bollinger from Martinsville, Indiana. You know, we had just looked at this passage in the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians in our Wednesday study, and we had a widow say that she had such a compatible marriage that she would never even consider marrying again because she could not do justice to a second husband because she would always try to compare him to her first mate. And I thought that was that was a bit of wisdom that all of us that are nearing where we might lose a spouse could take that as advice. That is that is a beautiful thing. It is a wise thing. It is it is possible, you know, to be remarried again and to have a very happy marriage that glorifies God. But boy, if that uh, if that first spouse is stronger in your mind than uh, the one that's coming up. Better not. <laughs> yeah, I like to keep I like to keep that picture around on my bed stand. Good night.